Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. gentlemen and welcome to the Rio Can Real Estate Investment Trust third quarter 2021 conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After management's presentation, there will be a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. I would now like to hand the conference over to Jennifer Zeus, Senior Vice President and General Counsel. You may begin. Thank you and good morning everyone. I am Jennifer Sue, Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary for RioCan. Before we begin, I would like to draw your attention to the presentation materials that we will refer to in today's call, which were posted together with the MDNA and financials on RioCan's website yesterday evening. Before turning the call over to Jonathan, I am required to read the following cautionary statement. In talking about our financial and operating performance, and in responding to your questions, we may make forward-looking statements, including statements concerning RioCan's objectives, its strategies to achieve those objectives, as well as statements with respect to management's beliefs, plans, estimates, and intentions, and similar statements concerning anticipated future events, results, circumstances, performance, or expectations that are not historical facts. These statements are based on our current estimates and assumptions and are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause our actual results to differ materially from the conclusion in these forward-looking statements. In discussing our financial and operating performance, and in responding to your questions, we will also be referencing certain financial measures that are not generally accepted accounting principle measures, GAAP, under IFRS. These measures do not have any standardized definition prescribed by IFRS and are therefore mm -hmm. unlikely to be comparable to similar measures presented by other reporting issuers. Non-GAAP measures should not be considered as alternatives to net earnings or comparable metrics determined in accordance with IFRS as indicators of RioCan's performance, liquidity, cash flows, and profitability. RioCan's management uses these measures to aid in assessing the trust's underlying core performance and provides these additional measures so that investors may do the same. Additional information on the material risks that could impact our actual results and the estimates and assumptions we applied in making these forward-looking statements, together with details on our use of non-GAAP financial measures, can be found in the financial statements for the period ended September 30, 2021, and management's discussion and analysis related thereto as applicable, together with RioCan's most recent annual information form that are all available on our website and at www.cdr.com. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Gitlin. Well, thanks, Jen, and uh, thanks to everyone who called in today. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you all. I'm here, not by myself, but with RioCan's executive leaders, and we're all happy to share our third quarter results with you. The impact of the pandemic on our day-to-day -day lives is thankfully and finally dissipating. Now that our tenants can fully participate in commerce, RioCan is perfectly positioned to capitalize on pent-up consumer demand. We are again firing on all cylinders. RioCan's story continues to be one of reliable, high-quality income, and steady, responsible growth. Our quarter-end results are strong, clean, and sustainable, with positive momentum on leasing activity, ESG, development deliveries, and balance sheet improvements. We've successfully navigated the pandemic because the retail bedrock of our portfolio remains solid and high-performing. The majority of our revenue comes from retail tenants that provide the products and services that consumers need every day, including grocery stores, pharmacies, liquor stores, and banks. Experiential uses like gyms and restaurants, well, they limped through the pandemic, but they're finding their legs. They're becoming viable again, and as they did before the pandemic, they produce vibrancy, and they give us foot traffic to all of our retail and mixed-use properties. Ancillary revenue, including parking, digital advertising, and event activations will similarly ramp up as traffic steadily returns to our properties. Our demographic profile continues to improve as well. You can literally stand at virtually any prominent intersection or community in Canada's major markets, and there's a RioCan property in close proximity. Now, retailers loathe to give up these penetrating locations that serve as efficient ways to distribute goods. 
They're also looking to expand into such spaces, and that's why retail assets, such as those that comprise RioCan's portfolio, will continue to strengthen operationally and financially. Favorable commercial conditions, well, they're great for RioCan, but they don't stand alone. We support our business activities by staying in front of changing market dynamics in a thoughtful and responsible manner, and that's why I'm going to lead today with a discussion about ESG. RioCan's commitment to environment, social, and governance isn't an initiative. Best practices in ESG are truly embedded in our DNA. I make this statement with such conviction because we're supporting our commitment to sustainability leadership through good old-fashioned measurement and reporting. Based on these processes and results, we received the top rating of five stars in the Gresby Real Estate Assessment for the second year in a row. Notably, we ranked second in North America amongst our peers, and in addition, we ranked first amongst our Canadian peers for public disclosure. We were also named Regional Sector Leader for Mixed-Use Development in our first ever submission in the Gresby Development Assessment. Our commitment to ESG isn't driven by recognition for our efforts although they are nice. It's driven by a deep understanding that it's essential to responsible growth and it's important to our tenants, our unit holders, and our employees. We focus on ESG because it makes good business sense, supports long-term value creation, and will accelerate the positive momentum we saw in this past quarter. Speaking of which, let's now reflect on our operational results for the third quarter. Essentially, all of RioCan's tenants are open across the country. With approximately 98% of rent collected in the quarter, our collection continues to resemble the pre-pandemic state. Given the composition of our portfolio, the productivity our tenants have shown since reopening and the introduction of new stimulus programs, we really don't anticipate our rent collection to be materially impacted by the lifting of governmental support. With the trend back to normalcy, I'm sensing that as was the case for the first 26 years of our existence, well, rent collection shouldn't be a significant metric of focus moving forward. As our overall committed occupancy continues to rise and increase to 96.4%, our same property NOI results will also continue to steadily recover. FFO per unit for the third quarter was 40 cents, and these metrics still reflect the direct effects of COVID-19 and pandemic-related provisions. However, as occupancy trends back to historic norms, the impact will continue to lessen. Ongoing leasing momentum reflects a favorable tension. Recall that before we, we sorry, recall that we were hard at work selling lower growth assets long before this pandemic, and these efforts resulted in a strong tenant mix and a strong asset base. Tenant eagerness to capture market share in this omnichannel environment is intersecting with the attractiveness of our high quality locations and compelling demographic profiles. Well-capitalized, forward-thinking retailers are seizing on the opportunity to lease well-located space, which RioCan has in abundance. This is evidenced by the fact that we completed nearly 1 million square feet of new and renewal leasing during the quarter and signed 217 new leases. But it's not just the number of leases that we should note here today. It's the breadth and the quality of these tenants that will support our growth and resilience moving forward. Lease rates continue to trend positively with blended spreads of 7.5%. Our new and renewal leasing spreads continue to demonstrate the healthy upside between our average portfolio and market rents and our ability to grow rent even in the most volatile of environments. We're confident that our leasing and operating metrics and our dogged pursuit of efficient operating practices will continue to result in organic growth. While we continue to drive this growth through our entire portfolio, our attention never wavers from our long-term strategy and commitment to maximize the vast number of growth opportunities at our fingertips. I'm now going to focus on the capital recycling activity that we've benefited from recently. The transaction market has rebounded, and the cadence of transaction activity is projected to exceed pre-pandemic levels. RioCan is well-positioned to thrive in this market as there's increased demand for convenience-based, well-located retail sites, particularly those with future development potential. We just witnessed a 20-month stretch where the retail landscape it couldn't have possibly have been more stressed and challenged. In defiance of the retail narrative, 
that prevailed through this period were sitting with occupancy and rent collection close to historic norms. The security of the income generated by these strong properties results in cap rate compression within the market for assets typical of those in our portfolio. The desirability becomes even more pronounced when the solid income is complemented by the intensification opportunities throughout our portfolio. As more proof points surface, we will continue to see enhanced debt asset values. We're taking the opportunity to benefit from the disconnect, though, between the private and public markets to trade our assets at attractive pricing relative to the net asset value discount reflected in our current unit price. The capital raised will work hard for our unit holders as this disposition program effectively repatriates capital from low growth or vulnerable assets and allocates it to more beneficial uses, strengthening the balance and funding higher the balance sheet and funding higher yielding more diverse mixed-use development sites. The valuation of our assets in the private market are, are a proof point in our proposition and a strong precursor to the values that we believe will continue to be recognized in our organization. Turning now to RioCan Living and RioCan's ongoing development, we are known as industry leaders in obtaining zoning entitlements. And as a result, we've got one of the country's largest and most advanced development pipelines. Our pipeline translates into lucrative opportunities to convert properties to their optimal use, a proven cycle that will continue to pay off in 2021 and long into the future. This pipeline fuels the diversification of our incomes through the delivery of mixed-use projects and the creation of NAV over the longer term. Development proceeded essentially unabated through the pandemic, particularly for mixed-use and residential construction in select markets where housing remains in short supply. The Trust's purpose-built residential rental portfolio continued to expand, and there's a dramatic acceleration in leasing activity since the provinces progressed in their reopening initiative. RioCan Living's residential rental portfolio currently includes almost 1,500 completed units across five buildings and an additional 1,300 units, which are now under development. We're going to deliver approximately 290,000 square feet of new space by the end of this year, including two mixed-use properties in highly coveted Toronto neighborhoods. Those are Litho at DuPont and Christie and Strata at College and Bathurst. Once stabilized, these new spaces will contribute meaningfully to sustainable growth in NOI and NAV creation. We continue to demonstrate that we have the expertise to create value in a variety of ways. As our press release detailed, Rio Can Living also saw robust sales activity in new condo projects. One example, in July, Rio Can Living launched the sales for the first phase of Verge, our mixed-use project located on the Queensway in Toronto. We pre-sold 96% of the 176 first-phase units that were released, and the second phase is selling at similar velocities. Now, I believe the implications of the recent residential leasing and condo sales momentum they span further than our multifamily residential portfolio. The enhanced demand for urban, transit-oriented, mixed-use property signifies a validation of RioCan's growth strategy, and it's a testament to the strength and resiliency of these great communities. I have complete confidence that RioCan Living will thrive in the near and long term. The total NOI from our residential rental operations will continue to increase as we complete new projects throughout this year. With that, I'm going to turn the call over to Dennis Lasuti now, who, as most of you know, joined RioCan as our CFO in September of this year. And Dennis has already demonstrated that his breadth of financial knowledge, leadership, and corporate strategy experience will be a tremendous asset to the trust. So now for the first of hopefully many, many more presentations, I give you Dennis. Thank you, Jonathan, and good morning to everyone on the line. First of all, I have to say that I'm very excited to be speaking with you in my first quarter as, uh, as CFO of RioCan. As Jonathan mentioned, our business has performed very well during the quarter, and the last 20 months have proven the quality and resiliency of our portfolio and our tenants. We have also advanced a number of our development projects, which are a significant growth lever that is embedded in our portfolio. Turning first to our results. FFO for the quarter was $126.9 million, or $0.40 cents per unit, compared to $0.41 cents per unit in the third quarter of last year. These results were driven by strong operational performance, resulting in a 6.6% increase in same property NOI as compared to the prior year quarter. 
Our same property NOI increase was the result of strong cash collection from our tenants, which enabled us to record a much lower pandemic-related provision of $2.9 million compared to $14.4 million in Q3 of 2020. We also point out that the prior year quarter benefited from inventory gains of $11.4 million compared to none in this quarter, and also $4 million of FFO from assets that have since been sold, a combined impact of $0.05 cents per unit. As Jonathan mentioned, the strength and stability of our tenants has resulted in overall cash collection of 98% for the quarter. Based on what we see today, we expect cash collection to progressively trend towards historical norms and the impact of provisions to remain at low levels in future quarters. In fact, we decreased our number of tenants that we classified as potentially vulnerable due to the pandemic from 21% in Q2 to 15% at the end of Q3, as a number of our tenants have bounced back very quickly with reopenings. Excluding the impact of the provision, same property NOI was down slightly by 0.8% compared to the prior year quarter. This was primarily due to average in-place occupancy for the quarter being lower than it was in the prior year quarter. This lower average was, was the result of certain tenants leaving spaces in late 2020, the majority of which has since been filled with, with new leases at higher rates. We note that this lower average occupancy is in contrast to the period end occupancy, which was higher at the end of Q3 2021 than Q3 2020 on both an in-place and committed basis as spaces were filled and leased, leases signed towards the end of the quarter, which will benefit our results going forward. Now moving to some other areas of the business. During the quarter, we continue to advance our strategy on a number of fronts. Notably, we have been actively recycling capital, streamlining our portfolio, and raising funds to invest in growth opportunities that generate higher returns. As we recently announced, our dispositions for 2021 are valued at $881 million, all but $16 million of which are closed or firm deals. These sales were priced at a blended cap rate of 3.74%, including $667 million of income-producing assets at a weighted average cap rate of 4.93% based on in-place NOI, as well as $213 million of development properties. Needless to say, this is a significant amount of equity capital raised at attractive pricing. As Jonathan mentioned, the cap rates that we achieved are supportive of asset values within our portfolio and demonstrate that buyers are willing to pay for development potential. We have also continued to advance our 40 million square foot development pipeline that is embedded within our existing portfolio. We believe that this is a very high quality pipeline given that 100% of it is located in Canada's six major markets. Over 80% is dedicated to residential buildings as part of mixed use properties addressing the demand for housing. The vast majority are located in close proximity to key transit lines, and over half of the total pipeline has received zoning approval or are currently, in advance, or currently advancing through the zoning process. The scale and quality of our in, embedded development provides Rio County a substantial value creation lever. We have a distinct competitive advantage due to our in-house development expertise for, and our residential-focused program branded as Rio Can Living. In terms of unlocking that value, our development team has continued to advance our, our projects under construction. At the well, our largest development project and one of the largest in North America, construction continues to advance on schedule. The base building construction of the commercial component comprising office and retail is approximately 80% complete. The office component is nearly fully leased and is expected to reach 99.5% following the completion of certain in-progress leases. The leasing of the retail component is advancing as expected with leases signed with a number of key tenants. We expect rents commencement for the office component to, commit to occur in phases over the course of 2022 and the retail component to follow in late 2022 into 2023. Our residential rental project at the well is also well advanced and is expected to be delivered in 2023 as well. In addition to the well, we have advanced uh, a number of our other projects having delivered two mixed-use developments this year in Toronto, which include both residential rental and retail components. We have three additional projects in Ottawa that will further expand our residential rental portfolio over the course of 2022. In total, we expect our residential projects that are currently in operation or under construction to contribute approximately $35 million of run rate NOI once stabilized 
and expect to grow this further as we continue to advance this strategy. In addition to developing rental projects, as Jonathan mentioned, we have been advancing our condo projects. These projects are another mechanism through which we can unlock the value that's embedded in our portfolio. We currently have six condo or townhouse projects underway, either in construction or pre-sales, and in total, these projects will generate approximately 190 million of inventory gains as they are completed over the coming years. We see the execution of these projects as proof points for our ability, for the ability of our platform to deliver on the value creation opportunity that is in front of us. A further proof point for our development capabilities is the fact that third parties are willing to pay us for this expertise in the form of fees for, uh, in projects where we have non-managing partners. While this is currently a mod modest income stream for us, generating 10.9 million of fees in the first nine months of 2021, we expect to expand this source of sustainable income as there is a strong appetite from private investors to participate in our development program. Of course, underpinning all of this is our strong balance sheet. We ended Q3 with 1.1 billion of liquidity on hand and credit metrics that remain supportive of our growth strategy. Given where we are in the development cycle on a number of projects, we expect our net debt to EBITDA to naturally improve as these projects are delivered over the course of 2022 and 2023. In addition, we have advanced our financing strategy to shift our debt to a higher proportion of unsecured and to extend the weighted average tenor. We believe that this approach will increase our financial flexibility and decrease risk. To this end, we issued $450 million of seven-year green debentures with an all-in coupon of 2.83%. This issuance was five times oversubscribed demonstrating the attractiveness of RioCan to debt investors who are seeking the quality and reliable cash flow that our portfolio offers. In addition, we announced the early redemption of our 250 million Series V debentures and have repaid or plan to repay 154 million of secured financings. Finally, following the distribution cut earlier this year, we are operating at a payout ratio that allows us to retain a significant amount of cash flows uh, for reinvestment. We note that our, F our headline FFO payout ratio of 72.4% is calculated on a 12-month trailing basis, so still includes periods prior to the distribution cut. If we look strictly at Q3 2021 distributions in FFO, the payout ratio was much lower at 60.1%. This level of payout ratio allows us to retain approximately $150 million of cash flow for reinvestments in growth initiatives, already accounting for the funding of maintenance capex. When you layer on project level leverage, this translates to approximately 400 million of cap capital, essentially funding our annual development spend based on current levels. While there is still much to do in order to move forward our financing, financing objectives, these are a couple examples of how we continuously improve our balance sheet. And with that, I will pass the call back to Jonathan. All right, good inaugural effort. Here we go. Um, so look, what I'll say is that over the last 20 months, the, the importance of well-located, professionally managed physical spaces has really been rediscovered. I mean, there were early conclusions about retail struggles, and I think they've given way to the recognition that people want engagement and control in their shopping experience. Now, bricks-and-mortar retail isn't an alternative to e-commerce. It's not that binary. It's an essential part of the omnichannel experience, bringing that last-mile gap between distribution centers and consumers' homes, sorry, bridging that last mile gap. Now, Rio can't focus, as it's always been, is on our customers, our tenants. We're committed to evolving our spaces to benefit from emerging trends and help really solidify Rio can and Rio can's tenants' place in that last mile delivery chain. We continue to demonstrate the ability to create exceptional and thriving communities, and really in any context. We proactively manage our assets through ongoing investment to ensure our properties responsibly maintain their competitive position in Canada's major markets. Now, I've said this previously, and I'll say it again, Rio Can is precisely where Canadians want and need to be. We've got the enduring strength, stability, and growth strategy to create lasting value. It's a privilege to lead this incredible team and have this well-positioned portfolio to continue our story of reliable income and trusted growth to create value for you, our unit holders. Thank you again for being here with us today, and now we are all happy to respond to your questions.
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you have a question at this time, please press the star then the one key on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. One moment for a question. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Our first question comes from Sam Damiani with TD Securities. Your line is now open. Thanks. Good morning, everyone, and uh, congratulations on, on the quarter. Great to see the, the pandemic uh, getting more and more in the rearview mirror. Um, you know, Jonathan, your comment about uh, the impact of the, the subsidy program turning over and having no impact on rent collections, I, you know, others have said that as well, but I'm just wondering if there's something specific that you're sort of referencing when you when you say that, uh, that, you, that gives you that confidence. Thanks, Sam, and, and good morning to you too. Um, the, the, the information that we get is from tenants specifically. I mean, one of the very, very faint silver linings of the uh, pandemic is that we have um, intensified our day-by-day -day discussions with our tenants, large and small. And we did that for a number of reasons, but a large part of that was to really help them through the process of applying for the various government subsidies that were available to them. And in doing that, we've established, I think, pretty strong uh, connections with them. And what we do with those connections is really seek information from them uh, constantly. And what we're getting from a wide variety of the tenants is feedback that things have normalized and that the timing of the removal of the stimulus will actually bridge nicely with the return to, to regular commerce. Now, we're not suggesting that there'll be no fallout. Uh, my sense is that you know every January we typically get some fallout, Sam, from retailers who sort of hang on for the uh, holiday season and then just, uh, you know, they, they they closed things down come January or February. We didn't see any of that last year. Uh, we suspect we'll see some of that this January or February, but we don't think it'll be more than normal course. Um, but uh, I think that, that really gives you a sense of where we're getting our information from. There's nothing more scientific than that. That's very helpful, thank you. And uh, it's great to see the occupancy and the leasing traction in the quarter. Can you maybe uh, parse that out just by uh, some of the segments of the portfolio between you know, grocery, power center, uh, and closed malls? What, what segments are outperforming uh, and what segments are, are lagging on the recovery right now? Uh, sure. I'm going to hand it over to Jeff Ross, our uh, head of leasing, who's, who's so on the ground and, and has a good finger on the pulse of all of the trends and the, and the, the tenants that are showing strength and growth and those that are still reluctant to grow. So, Jeff, over to you. Yeah, thanks, and good morning. Um, so, listen, we're seeing really um, the pickup across the board, both unenclosed, uh, in, in our supermarket anchored strips, the unenclosed, and, you know, what you refer to as the power centers. We're seeing absolute growth from grocery, both national and ethnic, a lot of QSRs and full-service restaurants. Anytime we have a blip, there's somebody right in behind to pick it up. And the interesting trend that we're seeing a lot of right now, Sam, is proprietary retailers like Under Armour, Levi's, Nike, 
um, uh, Adidas, Skechers, stepping up to take some of these on their own account, which adds a lot of credibility to the centers, and it certainly gives us the strength of the covenant in behind. So we're seeing that as uh, a continued growth model. Uh, yeah, the enclosed malls are dragging a little bit. They're just slower to come back. Tenants are just stepping back a little bit. They want to see footfall continue uh, to uh, come back to it. And uh, But funny enough, what we are seeing is uh, a lot of RFP and governmental requests for space. And those enclosed malls create an ideal environment for it. The boxes already exist. They can be converted relatively uh, effectively and inexpensively, and there seems to be a lot of interest in those. So we're continuing to work very closely with uh, all the governments at all levels um, that are looking for those type of uh, situations. Health and wellness continues to drive it as well an awful lot, but I will tell you across the board, no matter who it is, we're spending a lot more time scrutinizing who the new tenancy is coming to ensure that A, they've got some skin in the game and they've got the strength to carry on. But right now, the velocity and the interest from the leasing side is being pretty strong. That's great, caller, and, uh, and I'll turn it back. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Our next question comes from the line of Mark Rothschild with Ganicord. Your line is now open. Thanks. And good morning, everyone. And maybe continuing a little bit of what you were answering in regards to Sam. And for the leasing spreads, can you talk just a little bit more about how, do you feel that this is more of a stabilized number um, back to no impact from COVID, or is there still more improvement that you can get? And also, if you could break it out by just maybe some of the different retail types, if you're seeing trends. Uh, yeah, I think what we've seen over the last couple of quarters, Mark, is uh, is the trend that we can, we believe we will see. Um, the one thing I've learned not to do is put too uh, too sturdy of, of prediction on COVID uh, because it's certainly a pretty resilient little uh, you know little uh, pandemic and it keeps on coming back when we think it's gone. But uh, for right now, all signs point to uh, stabilization and normalization in both retail and residential. And so we do believe that what we've seen over the last two quarters with leasing spreads, same property NOI. Uh, and occupancy improvements is something that is in fact stable or is, is um, uh, I would say it's going to be consistent and I think it's sustainable and uh, I do think we will get back to pre-pandemic levels in uh, the vast majority of those of those um, uh, categories and uh, in terms of the, the the categories that are growing I think Jeff um, put it best when of course you know we rely on necessity based retailers to really fill a lot of the spaces, and they've come in and taken, um, they, they've contributed to that 7.5% leasing spread in taking uh, spaces that were you know, leased to lower rates. Uh, the good news is they're also very resilient uses, and I think that they will continue to improve our overall tenant mix. And you know, Jeff alluded to it, but it's absolutely true. We as an organization have been very judicious in the types of tenants that we've been putting into our available space, and I think that will serve us very well. But in terms of the categories, I, can't, I don't think I can add much more color than, uh, than what Jeff had provided. And I think there's definitely new categories that have come into play, like these governmental and quasi-governmental uses, which have really filled a lot of space. They bring a lot of foot traffic to our centers, and they're well-received by their co-tenants. Okay, great. Thanks. That's all for me. Thanks, Mark. Our next question comes from the line of Tal Woolley with National Bank. Your line is now open. Hi, good morning, everyone. Hey, Sal. Um, let's start with inclusionary zoning. Uh, obviously, the policy got passed yesterday by council. Can you just give uh, some thoughts about how you kind of see this unfolding with respect to your development plans? Sure. I'm going to hand it over to Andrew Duncan, whose uh, middle name is now inclusionary zoning, because you know so much about <laughs> it. So, um, Andrew, over to you, and you might want to come closer. Thanks, Jonathan. Hi, Tal. Um, in terms of impact on our development pipeline from an inclusionary zoning standpoint, um, listen, I think we spent a lot of time understanding the policy and specifically understanding the transition rules. Um, we're very confident that a lot of the near-term and medium-term projects we've got in our books, we've done what we need to do in advance the policy coming into effect to ensure, to the best of our ability, those projects are protected financially. 
Um, I would say philosophically, as an organization, we don't object to inclusionary zoning, but we do have some issues in terms of how the City of Toronto specifically is intending to roll out the policy. Um, and not diving in too many of these details, those really consist of the fact that the City of Toronto is asking that inclusionary zoning be borne in the back of developers and owners exclusively without providing any incentives whatsoever. Um, beyond that, like I said, to reiterate, we have done the work in advance of, of the policy coming into effect and, and worked very strictly with the city to understand them to ensure the majority of our pipeline is excluded from it in the near and medium term. And just to be clear, it's it's 5% on purpose-built rental to start growing to 8 Is that the... Is no, purpose-built rentals right now is zero um, okay. for the... For the for the near future, and we'll grow to five percent over the next number of years. Um, condominium starts at anywhere from seven to ten, depending on where you are in the city and the jurisdiction, and will grow year over year. The other thing I'd say is the inclusionary zoning policy the city's put in place is a policy right now. It has to be endorsed by the province through a number of mechanisms, and they've also committed to a one-year review. Um, so I think there's a lot more to happen on inclusionary zoning before it is finalized from a policy standpoint. So I've got this question in my back pocket for the next two years, is what you're saying. <laughs> Happy to answer it every time. But we've okay. got so much, Tal, we've got so much in the pipeline right now that is already zoned, which means that it falls outside of this regime. Um, so the near-term impacts for Rio Can are, are quite limited. But as, as Andrew suggested, I mean, we have always been um, very much on side with, uh, with providing affordable housing. We think that the key is actually more supply. Um, but that's obviously an uphill fight for us as well because it's difficult to get uh, to get entitlements. But um, once we have them, we are certainly always looking for ways to ensure that we are helping uh, the city and helping the continued demand uh, that is that is there for for housing and uh, from all different demographic profiles. So we're doing what we can to aid in that, whether this policy or not. Okay, uh, and then just pivoting to the balance sheet. Um, you know, you guys always carried a little bit less term on your balance sheet, maybe than your peers. Um, given that rates have have you know started to move here a little bit, are you, how are you thinking about uh, are you thinking about extending the term on the balance sheet? How are you how are you looking at your your financing strategy? Yeah, I think if if uh, it served as anything, the seven year raise that we just did uh, gives you an indication that it is an objective of ours to extend out that term. Um, it's hard to do overnight, and of course we have to weigh that against the you know, the, the cost of debt, which is, as you can imagine, higher when you are doing longer-term debt. But we really do think it is a responsible uh, initiative to expand out that term. Uh, Dennis, I don't know if you have any further color on that. Well, I think that's exactly right. We'll, we'll weigh off, um, you know, cost and tenor as we go uh, through time and, and look at rates. But with that said, I think uh, aligning our, our uh, term over time to be a bit closer to the weighted average life of our leases, as an example, is something that... Uh, that we will definitely uh, be chipping away at. Okay, and then my last question is just uh, as we're getting closer to year end here, uh, with the volume of dispositions that you guys have done, um, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the other other companies I've followed when they pursued that the tax position gets a little funky towards the end of the year and they have to do specials. Like, what is what's sort of your perspective on how your tax position will be with respect to dispositions by the end of the year? Yeah, we've uh, we've always had an eye on on tax implications, and we plan our processes, including our disposition strategies, well in advance of any given year. And we did so with a view to ensuring that there wouldn't be any negative impact or any real material negative impact uh, to our unit holders or to us as an organization. So we plan things very carefully. And uh, I mean, unless Dennis kicks me under the table, I would say, Tal, that there are no real implications from a tax perspective. Uh, from the uh, from the disposition successes we've had this year. Yeah, okay, that's great. So sorry. Hold on, let me we might have a qualifier. No, no, I think I think it's exactly right. I think you know just to be directed, we don't see a need for a, uh, any kind of special distribution for sure. We may see the percentage a little higher than it's been over the last last few years, um, but not a material impact. And certainly, when we look forward over the next um, number of years, uh, we don't see this as being being an issue. We have our uh, our tax uh, situation is manageable to, to avoid any such, uh, you know, very high uh, levels or special distributions. Okay, that's great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tom.
Our next question comes from the line of Pammy Beer with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Morning, Pammy. Morning. Um, just, you know, in this occupancy, again, you know, it ticked up nicely, I guess, uh, sequentially. I'm just curious, you know, given all the commentary that you made around the leasing velocity, how do you see that trending as we work through the next 12 months uh, from an occupancy standpoint and maybe perhaps, you know, any sense of timing of getting back to pre-pandemic levels, you know, which were, I guess, in the mid-96% range? Uh, well, right now our committed occupancy is in that mid-96 range, uh, and so we and we still think there's room for improvement because we are seeing. You remember one thing, and I alluded to this in my in my notes uh, for the call. Uh, we worked very hard before the pandemic to curtail our portfolio and get rid of a lot of secondary market assets that had low growth, a little higher uh, vacancy rates, and I think we're really going to see the benefits of that now as we as we emerge from this pandemic. Uh, you know, this pandemic crisis that we've been in. Uh, so we do feel confident that, one, the existing occupancy rate of that mid-96 is definitely sustainable, and two, we're quite confident that we'll improve on it and get closer, much closer, and hopefully eclipse that 97% mark uh, in the coming year. Uh, that's what things are pointing to right now, Tommy, and uh, again, we're just based on the on the lineup that we have for certain spaces in major markets, uh, we, we feel pretty confident about that. The one question mark, of course, is always office. Um, you know, our office portfolio did take a hit during the, uh, during the pandemic. Um, Jeff and his team have done a great job of filling a lot of the space that was uh, left open or, or vacant uh, over the course of the pandemic. And you know, I, I will echo the, the, the words of, um, of our, our partner at Allied Properties, Michael Emery, uh, we really do believe that office in a place like Toronto uh, will stabilize and, and the work from home uh, trend will, you know, maybe not end, but certainly reverse course a little bit and that will stand to benefit that occupancy over time. But there's a little less certainty in terms of the timing of that. From a retail perspective though, we've got strong confidence in our ability to get that number improved from where it is currently. Got it. Um, and sorry, I was just referring to the in place, not the committed, but uh, right. the answer, of course, is, is all valid. <laughs> um, in terms of your discussions maybe with tenants, can, can you comment on any perhaps implications that supply chain issues might be having on their, uh, on their recovery and how that might impact leasing velocity, if at all? Um, I mean, Jeff, you're, again, uh, speaking to these tenants all the time. Have they given you any colors to what the implications are? Not yet. No, it's been... Kind of tight to the chest, so no, I don't have a whole lot to offer there. That's probably dependent on the use. Yeah. Um, you know, grocery probably not so much, and hard goods probably a little more. But we have not. I mean, all we've heard is that margins are up, sales velocity is up generally across the board, and on the experiential side, again, thankfully, activity is up. But we haven't received any scientific feedback regarding the supply chain issues on their businesses. Okay, so it sounds like really not much in terms of, you know, that could possibly impact the phase of new store openings or uh, anything of that nature. No, I mean, look, uh, the only implications it might have is on our end, like we've got to construct these spaces for these tenants, and sometimes it's existing spaces where we're bringing in, uh, where, where we're doing the uh, landlord's work and, and some of the tenant fit-out. That is always susceptible to delays because of labor shortages and supply, uh, supply constraints. Uh, but it, it hasn't really created any material delays, but around the edges, it, it probably will. Got it. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the private market appetite for assets is still very strong. You know, that being said, you're just looking at your, your fair value gains uh, and your IPR cap rates, you know, they're, they're holding relatively steady sequentially. I'm just curious if you're, if you're seeing any perhaps downward pressure in the private markets for, for the assets of, you know, particularly retail. Uh, that might actually drive some portfolio um, value gains over the next you know, several quarters. Yeah, for sure. I think what we've seen is is more of a recent trend. Uh, you know, a lot of the transactions that service proof points for us went firm or closed after the quarter end. Uh, some of it near the end of the quarter. And look, we take our our approach to IFRS valuations very judiciously and seriously. So we often will get third party appraisals to help uh, solidify those those proof points. And we're in the process of doing all that right now, but the trends definitely do point to higher valuations for the types of assets we own. 
and I think that will be reflected over time in our NAV and in our, in our IFRS valuations. Um, so it's, it's just a matter of timing. Uh, just maybe one last one for me. Any further updates on retail leasing at the well? Uh, yeah, so I mean, we haven't uh, publicized any specific numbers, but I can tell you from the reports that um, I get from Jeff and his team uh, quite often is that uh, it's really heating up quite substantially, and that uh, makes sense given that the physical space is now available to be viewed by the tenants. And it's also now we're about a year away from the opening, which, which is, I think, the comfort zone for a lot of retail tenants to commit. So we are, um, I think the next report we provide or disclose uh, will show a market increase that, that is going to be, I think, quite, um, uh, quite welcome for the investor public. But it's not a surprise to us given how we view that asset and just how strong it is and how well it will fit within that community. Thanks very much. I'll turn it back. Thanks, Bonnie. Our next question comes from the line of Howard Loon with Veritas Investments. Your line is now open. Um, thanks, thanks for uh, taking my questions and uh, congratulations, Dennis, on, uh, on your first uh, earnings call. Um, yeah, I, I had a question about the uh, the uh, vacancies. Um, you know, they're about say about three-ish percent. Would you say a lot of the vacancies are concentrated in? You know, either in closed malls or secondary markets, or are they, you know, kind of spread out? Uh, so I'm going to hand that over to John Ballantyne. But my first instinct is again, a, a lot of the vacancies right now are coming from office. But in terms of the retail portfolio, do you think they're spread out or more from closed malls? Yeah, I'd say uh, they are a little concentrated in closed malls. Um, and on the office side, I would say, as Jeff said earlier, we are getting more traction on the office side. You know, it's, it's easier when we can take a very detailed look at our portfolio on a property basis. There are always certain larger vacancies that come up, not necessarily pandemic related, but just based on expiries. We had a larger one in one of our office towers in Toronto in late um, uh, 2020. Uh, we are actively backfilling those. There is a, a bit of a time delay, but you will see occupancy uh, continue to climb, as John said earlier. Okay. Okay. So yeah, there's some puts and takes there, um, and uh, just kind of looking at the evaluation cap rates for, you know, the uh, major markets versus the, uh, the secondary markets. It looks like the 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 cap the overall cap rates down uh, has compressed uh, as the mix shifts towards the major markets, but secondary markets ticked up a bit. Do you anticipate that you know as you continue to dispose more of these secondary markets uh, properties, uh, the the it gets harder and harder to dispose of some of these as you know they maybe it gets relatively less attractive because the uh, the ones you got rid of earlier were in higher demand. Yeah, I think that there's always going to be uh, more demand for major market assets, less demand for secondary market assets, hence our strategy in the first place to exit those markets. Um, but I, um, it, I, I would also just say that we kind of we sold as much as we're looking to sell in the secondary markets, right? We might have the odd sale going forward, but we're now at well over 90%, in fact, over 91% in major markets. So I don't think it's going to really impact I don't think you're going to see a lot more sales that come in from those secondary markets. Um, but I think demand is still there for those assets. From what we've seen over the last year, we still are getting a shallower pool, but there is still, um, there's still a willingness to own those assets by either local buyers or syndicators who've just been priced out of the major markets. So I don't, because of that demand, um, albeit limited, I don't see the cap rates really um, increasing too much on those secondary market assets. What I do think will happen is continued demand for major market assets where, and I, I do think, and again, this is crystal balling, Howard, so don't hold me to it, but I really do believe that there will be uh, a significant improvement in pricing over the next year in strong retail assets in the major markets. No, yeah, that's, I think that's a reasonable conclusion given, you know, it looks, fingers crossed, we're, we're turning the page on the pandemic. Um, and then just just kind of one last one on a follow up on the well the question about the retail leasing in in the, in the leasing conversations you're having you know is there any concern you know some of these 
tenants um, that are prospective tenants are are uh, are also you're also competing with um, you know not too far from from the well is the path which has a lot of vacancies I think for retail so is there any pressure from from you know the, the nearby vacancies in, in the past? So my perspective, and I'll, I'll be happy to get anyone else in the room to to weigh in on this, but I, I think it's actually a totally different market. We're, I mean, we look further west for our comparables or competitors rather than east. So we actually think that King Street is where a lot of our competition is, and we've created an environment that's entirely different than the path, which is largely just walk-through convenience stops, whereas the well is really destinational, and it serves all of the constituents that are already in that community, being the ones that we've created in the residential or office, or the ones surrounding that area where there's so much residential uh, density that we, they need a place like the well to come and uh, experience and shop and, and enjoy. Uh, so we, we actually don't think there will be any impact from the struggles that those unfortunate struggles that those past tenants are having. Um, so, and you know, again, Jeff, I don't know if you have any color on that. Yeah, no, listen, uh, the physicality of the path and the limitation from uh, people in seats in the office is really what's limiting it there. And it seems to have turned people uh, on an ongoing basis because they don't want to see this happen again. We are uh, on the street, we are not underground. And I'll also tell you uh, as you move west, University is about four kilometers wide. It seems to be a very dramatic and different market to the east and west side of university. And as Jonathan alluded to, downtown west for years has been searching for some soul, some heart of a community. And we're providing that both in the commercial and in the residential that's going up there. And it's drawing not just east and west, but north and south. Because Canagord Adex, which is a massive development to the south, has never had any real heart to it. By drawing over the north side, this is going to create that center of community for that downtown West market. But there is, if anything, there seems to be uh, tendencies that are looking to look for their new lease on life and get out of the path and come into our type of a center, which is very open, very porous, open on all sides, easy for customers to enter. And uh, I think we're a wonderful alternative for the next phase of downtown West. Uh, that, that, that's great color and uh, yeah, the street set, as you mentioned, makes a big difference. Thanks. Uh, thanks again. I'll uh, turn it back. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Jenny Mao with BMO Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Hi. Good morning. Hi, Jenny. I'm going to take advantage of having an inclusionary zoning expert and ask a couple of uh, detailed questions. Um, with the enactment of uh, of the policies, uh, assuming that it goes ahead, just want to be clear that that all the projects that are currently underway would be grandfathered from that, right? So it would be on incremental new approvals? Hi, Jenny. It's Andrew again. Um, yeah, I guess as it relates to our, our pipeline, any project that is already zoned is legacied out of inclusionary zoning. Any project that is under currently within the zoning process can be mm -hmm. legacied out of inclusionary zoning if a site plan application is made between now and September of next year. So to the degree we're in okay. that process, we're going to take those steps to be legacied out of it because one of the premises of inclusionary zoning is the incentive is paid for by adjustment in residual land value, and we already own these properties. So as such, we're going to take it. We're going to do our best to get get a legacy treatment and not be subject to that future requirement. The other okay. thing I note and add is our portfolio, our development portfolio, is across the entire country. Inclusionary zoning, as it currently stands, is City of Toronto policy. Correct, correct. Okay, so that's uh, that's clear. So when we're thinking about the the condo component, I, I noticed that the pricing ceilings that they had mentioned are obviously well below market. Is that something that they expect the developers to absorb? Like, are you are they going to ask you to be selling those units with the price cap that they mentioned? Is that how it works? Jenny, there's two options for the developers to, to um, comply with inclusionary zoning if they are subject to it. One is offering affordable rental units, and the other is offering affordable units for purchase. I would say this, it's less financially punitive to offer affordable units for rental than purchase, and the set-aside rates in terms of the requirements for the number of units is greater in the purchase scenario. So I would, I would anticipate as we proceed through the 
through people looking at the policy and having to be subject to it, you will see a greater proportion, if not the majority of all people, of all developers skew towards providing affordable rental as opposed to purchase. But yes, mm -hmm. all of this in the current policy has to come from the developer in terms of funding it. Okay, okay. And you mentioned that there were no incentives being offered to the developer. So, so there's absolutely nothing. Is there, is there a path for opening that discussion, like, you know, offering additional density in exchange for these concessions? Like, or is that sort of, uh, you know, a discussion that's not going to continue further? All of the, all of, Jenny, it's a good point. All of those things were discussed with the industry throughout the process. And the end result is the policy that was approved yesterday, whereby there's no incremental, um, incremental don't, density offered. The one, the one incentive the city's considering is not requiring or has considered is not requiring parking for any of these affordable units for rental or purchase. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, there's no other incentives. All affordable housing that currently is provided in the city of Toronto, most of it goes through something called open door where fees are waived and there's a number of incentives provided for a developer providing affordable units. Under the new policy, none of that is applicable. And I will say that uh, in addition, there is, CMHC came out with a program a few years ago where they've, uh, on their, they use their balance sheet, it's called the RCFI program, where they use their balance sheet to provide uh, cheaper financing to developers who will adhere to not just um, affordable housing requirements, but also accessibility requirements. And I think I, I applaud that program. It's something that still exists. And I think that that's something that, you know, again, I, I think that CMHC would be, would certainly would benefit the communities uh, in which CMHC serves if that is, is continuously rolled out and continuously taken advantage of by developers, particularly for uh, rental housing. Uh, but that's sort of over and above or different than the inclusionary zoning policy that was just uh, launched yesterday. <coughs> Great, that's very helpful color, thank you. Um, moving to the balance sheet, it looks like your floating rate debt is sort of sitting at about 8% or so, and it's had a fairly wide range over the last few years. But given the uptick in interest rates, I'm wondering if um, there's any you know, appetite to maintain it at the, at the current levels, or is there an effort to sort of bring that number down? Uh, floating debt? No, I think we've been pretty, um, like throughout all interest rate cycles, we've been pretty consistent with the amount of floating rate debt that we've taken on our balance sheet, and I don't think that that's going to uh, move in any dramatic way. Okay, great. Um, and then with regards to the transaction-related costs, um, for all the dispositions that you've disclosed, um, are those costs all flushed through Q3, or should we expect some of it to fall into Q4? On, on transaction costs, so there were some some of the deals that were in our previous press release, uh, Jenny, that were um, actually closed in uh, in in Q4. And some of them haven't closed yet; they just went firm. Yeah. So uh, they will be they, they will definitely service in Q4. Okay, great. Okay, that's all for me. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Again, if you have a question, please press star then the one key on your touchstone telephone. Our next question comes from the line of Sam Damiani with DD Securities. Your line is now open. Uh, thank you. Uh, one last question, not nearly as interesting as the last few. Um, just on the fourth quarter, lots of cash coming in between the debenture and the dispositions. Uh, I don't know if there's one, one redemption being planned, but um, like, is, there, is there likely to be substantial cash on the balance sheet at quarter end? I don't think we'll have cash on the balance sheet at the end of Q4. Our um, lines will be substantially available uh, at that point in time. We're, we were drawn a bit at the end of the quarter. Uh, we'll repay our $250 million um, uh, debenture uh, Series D, which would have been due next uh, May. We're going to repay, have, and are going to finish repaying some uh, secured mortgages, and then we'll have uh, the balance will go onto our line. That's great. That's it for me. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. There are no further questions at this time. I will now turn the call back to Mr. Gitlin for closing remarks. Uh, well, just very briefly, thank you everyone for dialing in and uh, thank you for enduring uh, the last 20 months with us and we're uh, again excited for certainly the next 20 months and beyond. Uh, have a great day everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating in today's conference. This concludes today's program. You may all disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.